Our Father, we're just so thankful for what we've been able to feed on. We thank you, Father, for two days of feasting. And we just believe it's just come from your very heart. Mm-hmm. You bless these men to stand before us, Father, and to express these thoughts that comfort us and strengthen us and struck us. Yeah, and they, they whoop us up too. Mm-hmm. Yes. We thank you, Father, for that. That we may take these in our hearts and mm-hmm. in our minds and we might be convicted of this. That in some way, Father, we might serve you better. Oh, yes. We might know you better. And that we might witness in the places where we're planted, Father, and be as these lights that you have instructed us to be. We just thank you for this church, Father, that you've given this to them as a ministry. Mm-hmm. And Father, that they might be comforted by this ministry and know that this is the work that you're having to do. We thank you for that. Bless each man, each person here, Father, as we go back home, that we might be encouraged in the field where we're planted, Father, that we might go find you. And for each one of us, Father, we might feel your manifest presence in our lives and in the work that you've given to each of us to do, that in all things we might be those beasts of burden, mm-hmm. that we would glorify you, Father. Yes, Lord. It's in the name of the one that we exalt that we ask these things. Amen. 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 The Lord Jesus Christ said, It is my meat to do the will of them that sent me. I want to be more like him than I go along. Uh, I need Brother Ernie's mirror up here because I'm really speaking to myself and my message is real, real simple. Uh, as we look through leaders in the Bible, uh, I think yeah, we got time out here. You can trust us. Tell us what the password is. The message is real simple. As you look biblical examples of leaders, there are some that are reluctant and there are some that are eager. Which does the Bible say for us to be? And that's... That's the message preview. My study of the Bible seems to indicate that the message there is leaning toward we should be eager. And it's unfortunate that eager leader sounds so much like eager beaver, but (coughs) willing, you know, someone who is is, uh, willing, willingly takes the lead in the right direction for the right motives. That's kind of my message. I can't sit down now, but we've got time for lunch. And I've made these charts, and you may not be able to see these charts, so I'm planning to talk to them. So if you can't see them, that's all right. But that's the title, Bible Leaders, Reluctance and Eagerness, starting with the Scripture here, speaking of Jesus Christ. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. There's the example of leadership in perfection, our Lord Jesus Christ. So next chart. Okay, just want to give some examples. Now as far as reluctant preachers, who's probably one of the most reluctant preachers you can think of? It's not on this list. I'm just talking about preachers. Who 
Jonah. Yeah, Jonah decided to go from, instead of heading from Israel to Assyria, east by land, he went to Tarshish, which if I understand it is Spain. I think he was headed for the other end of the Mediterranean. Jeremiah had some reluctance too. But now I'm talking about more than just declaring the word and preaching. I'm talking about someone who was called to actually gather people together and try to get them going in one direction. Talking about leaders. And the Bible gives us example of some who were reluctant and some who were eager. For example, Moses used his poor speaking ability as an excuse not to be a leader. Barak would not agree to lead unless Deborah came with him. Gideon didn't want to lead because he said he came from an insignificant family in a small tribe. Saul hid himself among the stuff, the Bible says. Hid among the supplies to, uh, to uh, avoid the designation that was prior to his anointing. I want to issue a warning right here. Saul started out a reluctant leader. Once he got a taste of power and fame, though, he was so addicted to that, wrong motive, he was willing to kill to hold on to it. So that's a side lesson there. Saul started off as a reluctant leader. Peter, when the Lord called him, right before the Lord really designated him to call him to be a fisher of men, he said, depart from me, Lord. For I'm a sinful man. So these were some examples of reluctant leaders, and I want to go into three of them in detail, Moses, Gideon, and Peter. Now the Bible gives us some examples of those who took leadership eagerly. Joseph dreamed of being a leader. God gave him the dreams. But he not only dreamed them, he's willing to tell the dream. Jephthah bargained in order to be a leader. I'll come with my men and help you militarily if I'll be your captain and head. David desired leadership. That's some scriptures pertaining to that. Nehemiah appealed to, for leadership for a very selfless reason. I mean, he had a high position, had some risk to it. King's cut better. You didn't want somebody to poison the king. Otherwise, sounds like a Fairly easy job. job yeah. What he asked for was not an easy job, but he asked for it for a good reason. And then Paul, who wrote for leadership, and like David, I've got some scriptures I want to reference for that. So I want to, even though I've listed all these just to show you there's more than I'm going to talk about in detail, uh, the three on each example I want to talk about is Moses and Gideon and Peter, who were reluctant leaders. And then uh, Jetha, David, and Paul, who were eager to lead. Next slide. Okay, you probably can't read that, so I just want to tell you the narrative. At the burning bush, God called Moses and commanded him to appear before Pharaoh, lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, at this point, these men come from all walks of life. Abraham was a shepherd that became effectively a prince. That's what the children sure. of Israel said. Thou art a prince among us. That's right. Moses was a prince that became a shepherd. <laughs> David was a shepherd that became a prince. <laughs> Amos was a shepherd that gathered sycamore fruit. You know, 
Peter, James, Andrew, and John were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a lawyer, effectively. You know, they came from all walks of life. But at this point in Moses' life, he had been 40 years out of Egypt now. Somebody mentioned it recently. I don't even know if he had spoken Egyptian for 40 years. He's living in the land of Midian. Not only that, the occasion of his leaving Egypt was not uh, a happy one. <laughs> it was a fugitive wanted for murder. And so, when God presented him with this command to lead, Moses didn't like it. And if you read Exodus 3 and 4, he offers up basically four main excuses. The first one, who am I to lead? You ever felt that one yourself? Who am I to lead? Okay, the Lord answered that one. I don't even know what name to tell the Israelites that commanded me to lead. The Lord gave him a name. I am that I am. Then he said, but even if I tell them that name... They're not going to believe me. The Lord gave him signs and wonders to do to show that he was authorized by God to do that. And then finally, Moses came down to it. Lord, I'm not eloquent. And I'm not a good speaker. Has it ever hit you that the two men that wrote the biggest contributions toward the Old Testament and the New Testament were both poor speakers? <laughs> Moses said, I'm not an eloquent man, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant. Paul says, for they say of him, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So, it's not a doesn't mean you're not called to lead if lead if the Lord's given you a gift of eloquence. He did to Apollo. You know, he did to others. Uh, but Moses and Paul didn't have it, and Moses brought it up at this occasion. Lord, I'm not a good speaker. Uh, the Lord uh, the Lord said, oh, okay, I've made man's tongue. I can handle that. I can handle these things you regard as disabilities. I'm able to that. And then finally Moses just basically said, Your will be done, Lord, whoever you want to send, you just send them. What was not spoken but meant in that is anybody but me. That's the point God got mad at him. Because God says, I know I can send anybody. He didn't say this, but this is basically God got angry. The idea there was, yes, I can. I'm sending you. Don't try to slough this job off somebody else. And so the Lord sent Aaron, and he says, I know he can speak well. Aaron's been living as a slave in Egypt all these years. Big brother, God sent Aaron. He says, when he sees you, he'll be glad to see you. So Moses uh, gathered Zipporah, his wife, and, uh, and their son. They end up having two sons, Gershon and Eliezer. And went back to Egypt, and on the way back, you know, Moses really, having learned that he was a Hebrew and everything, he had not really been following what God had commanded of the family. He had not circumcised his son. And God told him to go back. He really didn't tell him to take his family. He told him to go back. And so on the way, the Bible says the Lord sought to slay him. That's right. Now, I think that meant the Lord, if the Lord 
if the Lord's will was to kill him, I don't think he would have <laughs> made it very clear. That's right. But I think he showed Moses how fragile he was. Yeah. You know? And uh, that circumcision got done. It wasn't Moses. It was Ephraim that did it. Because he was there in a bad way. And she circumcised Gershom and cast the foreskin at his feet and said, A bloody husband art thou to me because of the circumcision. And uh, she went back to Midian and Moses went to do what God had commanded him to do. That's reluctance. Yeah. That's reluctance. So Moses arrived in Egypt and uh, confronted Pharaoh and the things got worse. <laughs> the Israelite slaves' work increased. And so uh, God, Moses came and complained to God. And you know, reading through, you start to see that the relationship between Moses and God is gets real honest. It's like Moses would come and say, Lord, since I tried to do what you tell me, things haven't gotten better. In fact, they've gotten worse. And you haven't delivered the people at all. And God just took it in stride. You know? There's a, there's a way to complain. Don't complain out in public among the people because for one thing, they usually can't help you. And another thing, it brings them down. But the psalm says, I poured out my complaint before the Lord. You know, the Lord's big enough to handle our complaints. Amen. Furthermore, He's big enough to do something about them. Yeah, that's right. I now, listen, complain respectfully. <laughs> you come boldly before the throne of the Lord, but don't come disrespectfully. He's a great Father. He is a great Lord. And so... He went before him and the Lord said, Now I will show you my power in the land of Egypt. And he gave Moses the signs and wonders, none of which were intended to release the children of Israel from slavery, because the one that was was Passover. And Passover would be the day that the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified about 1,500 years later. But that was it. If Pharaoh wouldn't comply, God said that he would slay the firstborn of Egypt. And he did passed over the firstborn of Israel, and they went forth, having been enslaved for at least over a century, I think, they went forth free uh, the very night of Passover. So Moses ended up leading. Moses ended up leading. He was a reluctant leader. Next slide uh, has some proof scriptures. I'll just read them. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. That's Exodus 3.11. Exodus 3.13 comes another excuse. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? Mm. Exodus 4.1 And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Exodus 4.10 And Moses said unto God, unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And finally, Exodus 4.13, the one that made God mad. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. And then... This reluctance didn't just disappear at Passover. Didn't disappear 
when they crossed the Red Sea. Didn't disappear when God sent manna from heaven. Because now Moses has been leading, and they're out of Egypt. They're crossing, they're at Sinai, and they spend nearly about a year at Sinai. How do we know that? Because they came out of Egypt on Passover. Well, they celebrated the second Passover before they pulled away from Sinai with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And after they pulled away from Sinai, and they started what should have been an 11-day journey to the land of Canaan. Ended up being a 40-year journey. Should have been an 11-day journey. But they started on that. When they got on that journey, the people started complaining out loud, not to God, to each other and to Moses. They were tired of manna. Here you got something that has sustained them. You can boil it. You can bake it. You can do all this. It's a complete food. It was, you know, if the health food stores had hold of this stuff today. <laughs> but this was coming from heaven and feeding them. It tasted like fresh oil and honey uh, with the size of a coriander seed. It was just a, just a wonderful food. They got bored with it. Do you suppose that no matter how well the Lord blesses you to preach over the years, that people might get bored with your preaching? Now that's not an excuse for us not to try to improve our preaching. That's just saying what Brother Ernie said, get over yourself. If you spoke with the tongues of men and angels, people are going to get bored with you. They got bored with manna. And it was so discouraging to Moses with all that complaining and everything that here comes that reluctance. He's a human being. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, and wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say to me, Carry them in thy bosom? Back animal. You know, really, you're not carrying the people. You're carrying something for the people. But Moses is sad here. As a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers, when should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, Kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Wow. You know, it was mentioned yesterday, Elijah begged to die, lay down under a juniper tree. Juniper tree. He, he lay down under a juniper tree and asked to die. Moses and Elijah came to the point in their life they were suicidal. They were the two that appeared on the Lord either side of the Mountain of Transfiguration. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I kind of think those are the two sons of oil spoken of in Zechariah chapter 4. Yeah. The two trees on either side of the golden candlestick. Mm-hmm. I kind of think that's who's being talked about in Revelation chapter 11. The two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. The law and the prophets. Yes, there. I may be wrong, but I see this because of those two anointed ones that says these have the power to turn water into blood and to withhold rain from heaven. Mm-hmm. Who did that? Yeah. Yeah. But this man was, uh, we timed out again, um, this man was reluctant. He was uh, weary. 
And he was reluctant from the start. And reluctance sometimes will make us weary. Brother Ernie said it. He said, you know, the Lord doesn't have a volunteer army. But if you volunteer, it makes it easier for you. <laughs> 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 what a perfect... You know, I didn't, I didn't even know what he was going to talk about, and I don't think, I don't know, but it goes together. Absolutely. Being eager, being voluntary, being willing yes. helps us. Yes, yes. Right. Next slide. Now, let's look at Gideon. You know the story of Gideon. He was threshing wheat in a hidden place, kind of by the, by the wine press, because the Midianites controlled that area of Israel at that time, and whenever they found food, they'd come and destroy it or, or maybe get it. Uh, but they, would, they, were, they were trying to deprive Israel of food sources. Do you see that going on in even this country? Yes. You know? That's what the Midianites were doing. The Israelites were in a hard place. And so an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and greeted him as a mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, thou mighty man of valor. Well, Gideon's reluctance starts manifesting immediately. First, if God's with us, how come we're doing so bad? You know, have you ever said that as a primitive Baptist? <laughs> the Lord's with us. Why, why is attendance like it is? You know? Uh, and then when uh, the angel said he was to go forth in this thy strength, he said, my family is poor and I'm the least in my family. So I'm an insignificant person from an insignificant group of people. You know, it's kind of like the lowest of the low. He's manifesting that reluctance. This is, this can get misinterpreted as humility. You know, real humility is like Jesus Christ. He humbled Himself and became obedient right. unto death. That's right. Even the death of the cross. Real humility is obedience to God. It's different from reluctance. Right. Uh, you ever been in a meeting where you nearly had to drag the guy into the pulpit? You know, and all of that? That's not... That's, if, if, there may be real humility there, but that's not a good manifestation. You know? And here it is, Gideon's manifesting reluctance. God told Gideon he would deliver Israel, and Gideon's reluctance starts off by testing God. Okay, if this really of God, I'm going to offer a sacrifice see if He takes it. So, go do it. God took it. So then God tested Gideon. You go destroy the altar of Baal. Well, Gideon did it by night because he was scared about that and they wanted to kill him the next day and Gideon's dad stuck up for him. Right. You know, if Baal's really God, well, let him plead. Let him do something about it. And Gideon got him a new name at that point, Jeroboam, which means let Baal plead. So when you read in the Bible about Gideon or Jeroboam, it's talking about the same person and Gideon got that nickname from his dad who was helping him out. So here's Gideon's poor and small family, his small family's helping him out. So then God, uh, Gideon then tested God again. The men started gathering to Gideon. They heard he had taken a step forward, destroyed the altars of Baal. The people start gathering. Gideon tests God again. Lord, if you're really with me, then I'm going to lay this fleece out on the ground and I want the ground to be all wet. I want the fleece to be dry. And 
strife. And I, I may get these out of order. But then he tested the Lord again the next night. Lord, I want the ground to be dry. I want the fleece to be wet. And he took the fleece the next morning and wrung out a bowl of water. And that's a little picture I tried to put there. And so there it is. So then God tested Gideon again. Can you see this? Yep. You know, and I, you may have had this happen. There's been times in my life I've asked God for signs, and He's given them. And uh, get ready. God may ask you after this for. Uh, for some commitment you hadn't planned on. Uh, but anyway, God then tests Gideon. 32,000 soldiers. He said, Gideon, let anybody who really doesn't want to fight this battle, they're scared and everything, let them go home. Well, Gideon made that announcement. <laughs> that's kind of like saying at church, you know. Everybody that's tired on Sunday morning just... Go home. Yeah. Don't, don't yeah. do that. Let's go. <laughs> anyway, a whole bunch of them went home. Yeah. He still had, you know, several thousand there. God took them down to the waters. You know, the there, uh, those that bowed down and drank right out of the water, they went home. And those that picked up the water and lapped like a dog, 300 of them, God said, by these 300, alive, deliver Israel. I don't want Israel vaunting themselves, giving themselves credit right. for this victory. Yes. So these are the ones, and, and you know how Gideon gathered his men, and he had them with a torch, a light, and a picture, picture of us being in earthen vessels, Amen. treasure in earthen vessels, and a trumpet. If the trumpet shall give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? Yes. You don't even read about swords. <laughs> they had <laughs> They had a torch, they had a pitcher, they had a trumpet. Yeah. But it worked. But before they went into battle, after all this testing back and forth, God gave Gideon some comfort. Yes. Gideon, are you scared? Well, yes, sir. who wouldn't be? If you're scared, uh, I want you to go down, sneak down to the Midianite camp and just listen. You don't even have to go alone. Take fear up. You're serving over here. You don't have to do this alone. That's a good message to me. We don't have to do this alone. Amen. And he took him down and you know what he heard. The Midianite soldier had a bad dream about a barley loaf rolling into camp and, and flattening all their tents. And the other said, this is none other than Gideon. Somebody had already heard about him in the enemy camps. And Gideon goes back assured now. God is with us. It took him a long time to learn that lesson. Well, that was what the angel told him right off the bat. The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. But Gideon is finally coming to the conclusion, you know, I think the Lord is with me. <laughs> There's reluctance. That's a reluctant leader. And so the Lord did lead him and uh, they went to victory and then Gideon had to deal with his own folks. Uh, he was trying to finish up this victory, mopping up action. People wouldn't feed his men. People wouldn't uh, come out and, and help him with the battle. It was, it was still lonely. And you can see why some reluctance occurred. Next slide. I'm not going fast enough that these wouldn't be time now. Okay, here's, here's the Scriptures there. And uh, Judges 6.13, And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us, and where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, 
did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of Midianites. The reluctance kind of goes along with disappointment. And He said unto him, Judges 6.15, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Judges uh, 6.36-39, that's the story of the police. I won't read it. You know it. And then, after the victory was won here, uh, they, they finally come to Gideon. They're recognizing him as a leader. And, and it says, Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Oh, yes. Now, there was some reluctance, but at that time, that was actually a good, a good thing to say. That's right. they, they didn't need a king. They didn't need a king later. And Gideon was wise enough to recognize that they didn't need a hereditary leadership. What he wasn't wise enough was, you know, to realize, you know, I'm pretty popular right now. Here's my chance to ask for something. Y'all take all those earrings that the Midianites had and give them to me. And uh, he took all those earrings, melted them down, and made this big gold ephod. And it became a source of division and, uh, and lusting in the whole nation of Israel. And it's the same thing, you know. Somebody that's reluctant to lead and even has the wisdom to know that there's a leadership they shouldn't take needs the wisdom not to accumulate things that distract the people. Um, there's some wisdom in that. Next, next chart. Now, Peter. Now, Peter's example and Peter's writing are the ones I want to emphasize most in this. But y'all know some about Peter. The Lord used his boat or his little ship for a pulpit one time, so he could address the multitudes from the on the sea coast. I mean, on the uh, coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater lake. But uh, after he finished his message, the Lord told Peter, launch out in the deep for a drop. And Peter said, Lord, we've fished all night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, if I were, I'll go. So they go out in the deep. The Lord says, let down the net. They get this miraculous draught of fishes. And here you start to see Peter's reluctance. Peter told the Lord to depart because he knew he was a sinful man. This is in the fifth chapter of Luke. Well, the Lord met this reluctance and said, follow me. I'll make you to be uh, fishers of men. And then Peter was reluctant when the Lord declared that he was going to be arrested and crucified and rise the the third day. Peter said, not so, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. So he was reluctant to even realize that what he needed to prepare himself as a leader, was to follow the one God had given for a leader and commander of the people. He was trying to oppose the will of God. Uh, Peter was hesitant to let the Lord wash his feet. And the Lord said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. I don't think that meant he would not have eternal life. It meant he would not have the fellowship and the memory of this treasure of this time with the Lord. Um, Peter, like the other apostles, fell asleep in Gethsemane. But you'll find one of the Gospels, that's Matthew 26, 40, the Lord addresses Peter by name. Yes. That. Mm-hmm. That's right. Peter denied the Lord three times. 
in the trial there. And then when the Lord was risen and sent him some special encouragement through the women there, tell his disciples and Simon Peter that I go before them into Galilee and there we'll meet with them. When he met him at the Sea of Galilee, uh, Peter had trouble saying that he loved the Lord. Yeah. He was reluctant to really say what was on his heart. Peter was reluctant to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Sure. The Lord gave that vision how many times? Three. Yeah. Three times. And then Peter still, I'm going to take some other folks with me. I need some witnesses to this. And then after God had done that, and Peter learned the lesson, and he baptized, oh, well, they went and Cornelius and his household were baptized. And Peter defended that action in Acts chapter 11. Peter was still hesitant when he was at Antioch having a good time, church meeting, eating with the Gentiles. Up comes some of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, where James is the leader there. And Peter looks around and says, I don't, I don't know if I want these Jewish brethren to see me eating with Gentiles. You know, how many times did Jesus Christ eat with publicans and sinners? But Peter is reluctant. He's, he's reluctant to lead because he's reluctant to follow. You know, the way to be wow. eager to, to lead God's children is to be eager to follow Jesus Christ. Yes, sir. That's next one. And here's the Scriptures for that. Uh, Luke 5, 8 and 9. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. Here's the one where he opposed the Lord's uh, prophecy. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. John 13, 6-8, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. You know Peter's answer after that. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. But can you see the reluctance? The Lord's, the Lord's basically talking him into doing what he should have just willingly done. Alright, Matthew 26, 40, And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? His denial, Matthew 26, 74-75, Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept, wept bitterly. John 21, 17, He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And then, at, before he went to Cornelius' house, his reluctance, but Peter said, Not so, Lord. <laughs> 
Thou shalt never wash my feet. This shall not be unto thee. Not so, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. There's always, there's so much of this with this man here, you know. This shall never be unto thee. You know, not thou shalt never wash my feet. Not so, Lord. For I, can you see that reluctance that comes from a, just an outright opposition to the Lord? And I emphasize that because Peter's going to write what I think is the clearest Scripture that encourages us to be eager about leading uh, as the Lord would bid us to do so. Next chart. Okay, try to make this kind of quick. Jephthah was eager to lead. Now, Jephthah had some problems. He was the son of a prostitute by Gilead, which was um, uh, Gilead or Machir. I think it was Gilead. But anyway, he was rejected by his brethren, so he was kind of kicked out of the house, and he, he, he had some rejection problems, and it shows up in his leadership. You can see that uh, places where Gideon was more diplomatic, uh, Jephthah was not. And, but you can see his eagerness to lead, because when he was rejected by his brethren, he went out and I guess was just a natural leader because a bunch of, of what does the Bible call them? Vain, vain men. You know, Basically, Jephthah fell into the role of sort of a gang leader. That's kind of what he was. I don't know that they did anything bad, but these vain men, that had meant that didn't have better things to do with their time. You know, they weren't engaged in service or anything. They were, they were men whose time was being spent kind of in worthless pursuits. Vain means worthless. Jephthah became their leader. But the Ammonites, you know, descended from Lot, northeast of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan, started wanting to take some of the Israelites' land that they had possessed east of Jordan, and they began to threaten the uh, provinces there, the sections of Israel east of Jordan, such as Gilead. And the Gileadites came to Jephthah and said, please come help us. Jephthah had some fighting men with him. It sounds like it was almost like they were mercenaries. That was his gang. Please come help us. And Jephthah said, you know, you threw me out. But I'll help you if I shall be your captain and head. Shall I be the captain of this area here? I said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. He said, all right. So they took him down and they appointed him. They recognized him as the captain of Gilead. And then Jephthah showed some wisdom. He wrote the king of Ammon, sent some messages to him, saying, why are you attacking me? And the king of Ammon says, because you folks there in Gilead are sitting on Ammonite land, I'm coming to get it back. Jephthah wrote him and said, no, check your history, don't rewrite it. You know, when Israel came in here, God wouldn't even let us attack Ammon. We came over here and we defeated the Amorites, Og, the king of Bashan, all these folks over here. God gave us this land. We never touched any of your land. You, you just stay where your gods give you because this land's ours. And the king of the Ammonites basically said, I'm not listening to you. Negotiations ceased. And so Jephthah, recognizing that negotiations were ceased, the Spirit of God came on him. And he, he uh, got his men together and they went forth. And God gave him a victory in spite of a dumb vow he made. That's another lesson there. But Jephthah made a terrible vow, ended up with his daughter. I think what it meant is his daughter never had any children. 
you know, I think uh, I think that was the way she was sacrificed. But whatever it was, it was grievous, and God gave Jephthah the victory. Well, after the victory, Jephthah had to leave again, and he did, because Jephthah had gone forth and done what he could when he had to defend it. And the men of Ephraim over west of the Jordan, big tribe, could have helped him out, said, why did you not call us to fight the Ammonites? And because you didn't call us and let us participate in this victory, we're going to burn your house down. Yeah. Well, that's not, a, that's not a good way to do it. And Jephthah said, well, he said, I called you and you didn't help me. So when you didn't help me, I put my life in my own hand and I went against the children of Ammon and God gave me the victory. And so uh, the men of Ephraim started uh, uh, their threatening Jephthah had to lead again. Yeah. So he gathered his army. Guys, we've got to fight a second battle. Well, where's the enemy this time? West of us, it's our own brethren among the yeah. Israelites. And they did. And they won. They took the fords of Jordan. 42,000 Israelites died. But what I want to show you here is Jephthah didn't just lead when he had to. He was willing to step forward. Next chart. Judges 11.3 Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. Judges 11.8 through 11 That's where he negotiated with the king of Ammon. <coughs> Judges 11.12 And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon saying, What hast thou to do with me that thou art come against me to fight in my land? I'm wrong. Judges 8-11 is uh, where it says, Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. Well, what, what discussions went forth? It says earlier, And Jephthah said unto the elders of Israel, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy word. So he bargained with them in order to take this leadership. Then he led again, and then finally he led against the Ephraimites. And it says, And Jephthah judged Israel six years, so he continued to lead for a few more years. Next chart. David was eager to lead. Young David sincerely believed there was a cause, and it was a cause of God. Yes. And he's willing to step forth and act alone. So he's not leading just yet. He's just acting. Steps forth to face Goliath. But after that, Saul's getting jealous, and Saul wants him out of his presence, and Saul really wants him in a dangerous place. Sure. So he makes this young man who probably has, probably has just become of age to qualify for military service. I figure David was maybe 18 or 19 when he faced Goliath. And then shortly after that, at 20, he was eligible for military service. Hmm. See, that's why he wasn't in the army in the first place when he faced Goliath. Right. It's just a deduction. Yeah. But 20 years old, military service, where do you usually start? About private. You know, you're a foot soldier. Right. <laughs> David was the captain over a thousand because yeah. his king wanted him dead. Mm-hmm. You know? It's captain over a thousand. If you don't do that right, not only is the enemy allowed to kill you, I mean, likely to kill you, your own men are likely to kill you. So David was there, captain of a thousand. But he's willing to do it. He did the best he could. 
When David fled from Saul, the assassination attempts got out in the open. David originally fled into the land of the Philistines and had to pretend he was crazy to get back into the land of Israel and hid in the cave of Adullam. People that were in debt and discontented and distressed, they came out to him. He ended up leading four to 600 men in the wilderness. Now, don't you think about what that entails? That, that doesn't just mean, hey, I'm your leader. That means, where are we going to find groceries for these guys? Where are we going to have something to eat? You know, providing a place of safety and food. David ended up with that. After Saul died, David was willing to reign over the tribe of Judah. They anointed him king and he settled in Hebron, ruled there seven years. After Saul's son Ishbosheth was killed by his own men, the elders of Israel came to David and anointed him king. He made a covenant with the tribes to do that. He led the tribes to retake Jerusalem, been out of Israel's hands for centuries, even though they had taken it in the days of Joshua, they had lost it. Yeah. Then David led the children of Israel to bring the ark into Jerusalem. David led the children of Israel to face the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Syrians. David was willing to lead to support friends who fought for him when Absalom took his throne. And, and they wanted him to lead from the town. They didn't want him to go fight. And so he stood there and prayed and watched for news while they got the while they faced the army of Absalom. And then finally, just before he died, David led Israel in building the temple, though he knew he couldn't build it. You know what do they say? Civilization is when an old man plants a tree that he knows he'll never eat the fruit of. Yeah. Well, David was doing that. God had mercifully given him the plans of the temple, passed them on to Solomon. Yep. David said, Solomon, well, he didn't say it. He did this. He set up he set up the singers, he set up the porters, he set up all these that would have the ongoing worship yep. so the temple would be ready for use, the people before the building was built. And then David all his life had been preparing gold and silver and precious stones and iron and brass and everything to... He, he got the building materials ready for Solomon. He led that. Yep. He's willing to lead that. In fact, that was really what was dear to his heart. What was really on his heart, I want to lead to prepare for that. Next chart. Now, let me just pick out a few because I'm taking too much time. But uh, I won't read all of them, but I just want to read something that shows... Uh, David's uh, willingness to lead. Let me get these last two. Uh, uh, no, this one here. 2 Samuel 3, 21. Abner says something to appeal to David. And Abner said unto David, I will rise and go, and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desireth. And David sent Abner away and went in peace. See how Abner's appealing to David? Yeah. you got a desire here. You desire to reign. I'll help bring this about because I'm tired of uh, the house of Saul. And then over here, look what David writes. By the inspiration of the Spirit in Psalm 18, verse 44. As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. The strangers shall submit themselves unto me. Wow. See, there's David was eager to lead. Now let me contrast David and Saul real quick. Saul was reluctant to lead. But then later on, after he was disobeying, drawing apart from the Lord, any threat to his leadership or authority, he was ready to kill to keep it. Yes. David wanted to lead. He was totally willing to be king. He wanted to lead. 
But when there was a threat to his rule, and there was some advantage coming to him, he did not do wrong or try to grab things to hold on to leadership. Let me give you the example. He's fleeing from Absalom. He goes out of Jerusalem. He's walking up crying up the Mount of Olives, barefoot with his head covered. And who should come out but the two high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and they're carrying the ark out of Jerusalem. Why? Well, David was the one who wanted to bring the ark to him in the first place, get it in Jerusalem. Furthermore, if there's a question in somebody's mind about who is the real king, who's got the signs of authority here, don't you figure it might help to have... That's just a deduction there, but I expect it could have some some political value at that point. It's got the ark with me, you know. You know what David said? He said, take the ark back to Jerusalem. If the Lord delight in me, He'll bring me back to it. But if He delighteth not in me, behold, I am in His hand. Let Him do with me as seemeth Him good. This is the point. Saul was reluctant to lead but he had this grasp on power and honor. David was eager to lead, but he said, Lord, if you take me away from it or it away from me, you know, whatever, Lord, thy will be, we just sung it, thy will, not mine, be done. Thy will, not mine, be done. Next, next chart. The Apostle Paul, eager to lead, met the Lord on the road to Damascus, the Scripture tells us he immediately began preaching. Now think of that. Let me go. I'll read some of those Scriptures. Then he went to Arabia. Then he came back to Damascus to preach. If I've got my timeline wrong, y'all help me because I was trying to think this out. Then the preaching got so influential in Damascus that folks started trying to kill him. They had to let him down over the wall of the city in a basket. Uh, so... Paul got to Jerusalem and the folks didn't much like him there. He had killed a lot of loved ones probably or imprisoned a lot of loved ones of theirs. So they decided the best thing to do is send him out of Jerusalem to his hometown, Tarsus, southeastern Turkey, and let him just cool his heels a while. And he did. He was willing. Peace of the church. He, he went there. And uh, then things started going in Antioch and Barnabas, son of consolation. He, uh, he's, he's I, I'm going to go get... Paul and get him in on this. So Paul got Barnabas. I mean, uh, Barnabas got Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus at this time, brought him. And Saul became a teacher in the church at Antioch. And then the Holy Spirit separated him and Barnabas for the work. And Paul, you can see him growing in leadership as they go. He begins to do these things and and make these these, uh, teachings. And they established churches in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, many places throughout Greece and Turkey. Paul was one of the leaders in the disputes against those who were trying to introduce the notion that circumcision or the works of men were required for salvation. Paul led in the coordination of an effort to get money uh, from the churches in the area of Greece and Turkey, that those areas, the Greeks, to help the poor uh, saints in Jerusalem and Judea. Paul led his own legal defense. He never did hire a lawyer. He just had to 
And he does a lot better than some of these fellows that are defending themselves today. Paul was actually very good at that, but he was leading that. And then, then finally he's appealing to Caesar, and he, he gets on the ship where he's a prisoner, and they're taking him to Rome. Now this is leadership. He's the prisoner, but knowing of the Lord what's going to happen, he goes to the centurion who's the leader of the expedition, the decision maker, and says... We probably better stay here in Crete for a while because it's going to get dangerous. We'll lose this ship if we go. Well, can you put yourself in the centurion's place? You know, here I am, the leader of this, and the captain of the ship is saying, it's a great time to sail. And the guy that owns the ship says, yeah, let's go. And the prisoner says, no, we better stay here. <laughs> I didn't understand where the centurion was coming from. But Paul ended up as the kind of the leader of this because they did. They hit the storm just as the Lord told Paul, uh, Eurachodon, and it got bad, you know, and after a while, it was like two weeks, they were driven back and forth in the sea. They couldn't see the sun. They couldn't see the stars. That's their navigation right there. They threw out the tackling of the ship. That means if we ever get some navigation, we can't do anything about it because we can't steer this ship. And so they're there, and it says all hope that we would be saved was taken away. All of a sudden, Paul leads. You know what he leads them to do? Dinner. Well, first he leads them to cheer up. Cheer up, buddy. He leads them to cheer up a little. He steps up and says, the angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve, appeared to me this night saying, fear not, Paul, because the Lord will deliver you and He's given you all the sail with you. And he says, therefore be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as He hath shown me. Yeah. And so he's leading them to be encouraged. And then when they finally run aground near Malta, he leads them to get something to eat so they'll be strong enough for this last final swim. And uh, so they, they all have a good dinner, throw out the wheat so they can ride a little higher and get a little closer to the land before they have to jump overboard. And uh, they all make it. Sink it. He led one more time. They, they needed this thing to run aground as close as they could to Malta. So they needed their strength to eat. But they, they needed to have the ship guided in such a way. And there were a few select fellows on that ship that could guide the ship. They were the sailors. And you know what the sailors were trying to do? Get away. <laughs> under cover of darkness, under cover of uh, we're going to... Uh, we're going to set some additional anchors, you know, for security. They were trying to slip over the side and take the boats on the end of shore. That's right. Paul knew it, and he led, and he said these words that we use so often to prove that saved doesn't always mean saved unto eternal life. He told Julius, the centurion, the leader there, point out there, the sailors, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. That is, this uh, promise that we're all going to swim on shore, we need to do the best we can to get close to the shore. And Julius told his soldiers, chop those ropes off and and they did. All of a sudden, they didn't have boats, and the sailors were like, okay, we're going to be sailing as soon as we got some water. <laughs> so, then, then when he got to Rome, he led the meetings to inform the Jewish leaders there what Christianity was all about. That's right. And then he continued to lead people as they came to his house yep. and preached the gospel to them. Next chart. Let's see if I can get these. Uh, Galatians 1, 15-16, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, 
immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. That's right. Is that reluctance? No. That eagerness. eagerness. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Straightway. Is that reluctance or is that eagerness? Eagerness. Then it mentions that he was one of the teachers there in Antioch, so he was willing to lead. He was willing to lead with others. Notice that. He didn't have to be the chief only guy. He was willing to lead alongside of other leaders. Uh, Acts 16, 9-10 And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man in Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we have endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. You've probably heard that or noticed it before. Acts is all in third person, written by Luke. Yeah. Acts is in third person until you get to chapter 16 and all of a sudden, right there in the middle of it, it switches to first person. Hmm. Why? Luke is with them now. Mm-hmm. And so Paul is not just going. He's got Luke with him and he's got Silas with him. I think he's got Timothy with him. Mm-hmm. All, all of a sudden, it turns to first. It's a first person account from Acts 16 to the end of that. And, uh, and so he's leading a group of people because God's leading him to go into Europe for the first time to preach the gospel. Uh, here's the effect of his leadership got so bad that he caused a riot. He's in Ephesus. He stayed there. A lot of places, like he was in Thessalonica two weeks, I mean three weeks. Okay. He's in Corinth a year and a half. He was in Ephesus about two years. So, Brethren, when folks go over to the Philippines and they're there for a couple of weeks or something, sometimes people will criticize them. Why? Wow, this is just drop-in evangelism. No, Paul did it. Yeah. So however the Lord leads him. He's in, he was in Thessalonica three weeks. Right. He's in Ephesus two years. But what happened in those two years? He's preaching the Gospel so much that, uh, that the, <laughs> the sale of idols goes down. Yeah. It starts to have an impact on the economy. You know, they're out there volunteering. There's no compelled book burnings. But these people begin to believe in the living, unseen God so much and seeing the, the goodness of God's Holy Spirit that they're getting rid of all these occult books and magic books and spiritual... You know, they're getting rid of their crystals and tarot cards. And they have a big book burning that they themselves voluntarily do. Yeah. Well, not only that, the sale of silver idols goes down. And the silversmiths start saying, well, we're going broke here, you know. You know, we can't make enough uh, forks and spoons. <laughs> we need folks buying these little pictures of Diana made in... And they actually have a riot. And that's what it says. This is the words of Demetrius the silversmith. Moreover, you see in here that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, that's Turkey, this Paul had persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. Well, Paul was doing more than that, not just turning people away from gods made with hands. He was turning them from the power of Satan unto God who is unseen. The cosmic, the creator of the universe. That's what he was doing. So now, listen to this eagerness. 1 Corinthians 4, 16. Wherefore I beseech you, brethren, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. 
1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. Philippians 3.17 Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which mark, which walk so as you have us for an example. That's right. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And ye became followers of us yep. and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Yep. Sometimes it's real uncomfortable for me to have somebody following me when I'm driving, when, especially when I don't know exactly where I'm going. You know, have you ever had one of those times you had to turn around two or three times when somebody falling? <laughs> but Paul was willing to leave. He was willing to leave and even ask people to follow him. And so there was an eagerness there. Yeah. All right. Get down to the end here. Which is better? Reluctance or eagerness? And I'll tell you the reason I'm with this message is because I fall on this side reluctantly. Yeah. Sure. Just me. Is that where I should be and is that where I should stay? That's the big question. Well, let's, let's read the Scripture and see which way it leans. Deuteronomy 18, 6-7 And if a Levite come from any of thy gates out of all Israel where he sojourned, and come with all the desire of his mind yes. unto the place which the Lord shall choose. And then he shall minister in the name of the Lord his God, as all his brethren, the Levites do, which stand there before the Lord. Mm -hmm. Did you catch that? Mm -hmm. He comes to your area with all the desire of his mind. He's desiring to be there to serve. There's a desire to serve. comes with a desire of his mind. Judges 2.16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. There is the Lord raising up leaders. Acts 13.22, And when He had removed him, He raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also He gave testimony, saying, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Now, did David fall into the reluctant or the eager? side of that. He was an eager leader. A man after God's own heart. That's right. Ezekiel 22.30 And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me before, before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Nobody was eager to stand there in that gap. It's understandable. But, uh, but it's something that the Lord was, was thoughtful of. 1 Timothy 3.1 This is a true saying. If a man what? Desire. Desire. The office of a bishop. Is that a good thing? So is he desiring the good work? It's a good thing for a person to desire to faithfully undertake the work of an office of an elder. It's a good thing. But this is, I think, the strongest Scripture I have and it comes from the most unlikely source, it seems. This is the Holy Spirit causing Simon Peter, of all people, not so, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. The not so disciple. The not so disciple. What does he write when the Holy Spirit is moving His words. Mm -hmm. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, yeah. and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. What's the next words? Yeah. Not by constraint, but willingly. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Don't make folks have to force you to lead. That's right. Don't take it by constraint. Mm. Do it willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being insiders to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Don't make it a matter of constraint. Do it willingly. Alright, let's have this scripture one more time. Let's balance this. Next chart. It needs to be eager. It needs to be willing. But the eagerness has to be motivated for the right reasons. Because it says, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. There again, ready mind. Neither is being lords over God's heritage. The motive for leadership, for eager leadership, should not be money or power. That's... That's a bad way to go. If that's the source of the eagerness, step away. Not for filthy lucre, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. There's one of the chief requirements. An eager leader, a willing leader, needs to rely heavily on his example. You know, think about that. How could Moses, who was a poor speaker, and Paul, who was a poor speaker, how could they lead? Well, they were great writers. Okay? But they were good examples. Okay? Shouldn't be for money or power. Shouldn't be for honor or fame. But all their works they do for to be seen of men... They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your Master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Honor. You know, uh, you get the name Rabbi. You get the title, Rabbi, which means master. Mm-hmm. Fame. Everybody knows you in the marketplace. Yeah. Hey, good to see you. Come on up here and sit at the testimonial table. Right. <laughs> Shouldn't be for honor or fame. Well, let me say something a little controversial here. You know, rightly so, we don't like the title Reverend. Sometimes it slips in an obituary. That's, <laughs> we, like the, we don't like the title sure. Reverend. Because the one time reverend appears in the Bible, Psalm 111, it's talking about God. Okay. We shouldn't like the title reverend. But I'll tell you, nowhere in the Bible does it use elder as a title either. It's an office. I do, not very well, I occupy the office of elder since my ordination in 1982. But you will search long and hard to find elder so-and-so in the Bible. Should we be using non-scriptural titles? Okay? And I, th- I don't think any of the brethren in this room do it for reasons of honor or anything. It has become a tradition. It has become a convention among us. It is an unscriptural one. 
What is the title used in the Bible? It's the title Ananias gave to Paul when he came in to baptize him. Brother Saul, God has sent me that you might receive your son. That's the title. You know? And I don't mean it as a mean thing if I, you know, if I invite you, brother, which I would love to do, to be the invited speaker at something. If I say, brother, so-and-so, I don't mean that as a slam. I mean that as a scriptural compliment. I'm very honored to have you as brethren and sisters. And that's the Bible title. Is elder in office? Yes. Is deacon in office? Yes. Are either of them titles? Not for honor or fame. Well, if those are not the motives, what are the motives for leading willingly and eagerly? Can I get some of you brethren to... Well, no, I'll just turn and read it. In fact, if somebody will, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 2, 1, 5 and Ephesians 4, 15. Uh, I would like to call... Okay, why... What are the motives for being eager about leading? The first one I want to read is real familiar to you. It's uh, 1 Kings uh, 3. And uh, that's a long one there. I'll just go ahead and try to quote at it. Solomon went at the beginning of his reign to offer up sacrifices to the high place at Gideon. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Ask what I shall give thee. Do you remember what Solomon asked for it and why he asked for it? He asked for wisdom that I might go out and come in before this thy greater people, that I may know how to judge thy people. He asked for the ability to lead so he would be a good leader of the people he was supposed to lead. So he asked for wisdom for that. Uh, Luke 22, 24-27. through 27. short enough to read, so I'll do that. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest... Here's those that established the New Testament church and wrote the New Testament. They're arguing about who can be the greatest. Can you see, as reluctant or eager as they were as individuals, can you see where their motives were needing correction? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember this, they're sitting here at the they're sitting here at the communion table. This is where Christ is going to wash their feet. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And He said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. They that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. There's the motive. It's a motive to serve for the Lord's sake in His example. Feed the sheep. We've already talked about John 21 through 
verses 15 through 17, that's what the Lord said to Peter three times that Peter was so reluctant. He just, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then who was it that wrote, desire the sincere milk of the Word, uh, that uh, desire the sincere milk of the Word, there is Peter himself in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And it's he who wrote in chapter 5, feed the flock of God which is among you. So, he learned the lesson. It's, it's to serve. It's to feed. The focus is to be on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Anybody there at uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5? Yeah. Brother Shannon, would you read? God, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Thank you. There's, there's a motive for eager leadership. Yeah. <coughs> it needs to be Christ-focused even while it's eager. Needs to be pointed in the right direction for the right motive. Otherwise, it's a flimsy foundation standing in the power of men or the wisdom of men, and not the power of God. Anybody at Ephesians 4 15? Brother John. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Thank you. So there's the motive service, feeding. A focus on Jesus Christ. And it's the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but speak in love. When we lead or when we preach, you're addressing people with broken hearts. Sure. You know that discussion we had yesterday afternoon? There's a lot of broken hearts you won't pick up on. So, when it's time to feed the sheep, remember, it's folks with broken hearts. Now, we need to get over ourselves. <laughs> not everybody's gonna. Not everybody's gonna hear us. Not everybody's gonna believe us. We're not gonna get the kind of responses that we would like many times. But let me conclude by coming right back to where Brother Shannon started in First Timothy, chapter five, and that is not only be eager to lead, but continue to be eager to lead. Yeah. And what? I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4. Excuse me, I got it mixed up. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word, be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall be turned away, and, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Even this is I know this is hard, it's hard for me. Even when you don't think you're successful, even when it looks like nobody's really following, mm. be eager to lead. And the best way to be eager to lead 
is to be eager to follow he that was given as the leader and the commander of the people. Yes. That's our Lord Jesus. So, here we got an example speaking of Titus. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, and being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I sure appreciate that. Amen. 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 And, uh, time one. Good to get you sisters back. Let's stand and sing the hymn. Let's sing hymn number 